All right. Well, it's uh, been a while since I've been on a Wednesday night, so we're going to pick up in our study through the life of David. And tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I, uh, I'm, I'm blessed by the passage. God has a certain way of ministering to you in the course of a day, and um, this one really touched me. I pray it does the same for you as well. That's, uh, I'm going to begin uh, not in the passage itself, but I'm going to begin with a verse out of Galatians. You can mark it and take a look at it later, but you're going to want this uh, to keep and maybe even memorize. It's uh, Galatians 5.16, and, and the Apostle Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'll repeat that. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And uh, we're going to come back to that verse a little bit later in our study. But we're going to pick up, and I'll give you a refresher in regards to the life of David. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord, please, we ask you to bless us tonight. We ask, Lord, that you'd minister to us. We thank you that you're a benevolent king and a loving God and a wonderful father. And so, Lord, cause us to come alive to your word, even in the course of a busy week. Maybe many are tired, but, Lord, I, I ask by, your, by you, Holy Spirit, you'd refresh us. Cause us to be attentive and be transformed. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word that awakens us and causes our sleeping soul to be restored. And, God, I pray you do that tonight, uh, especially folks just fighting to get here a Wednesday night, just wondering if it's worth it. Lord, tonight, meet him, minister to him like you did to me today. And I pray your blessing upon all who are present. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So a refresher in regards to David. Uh, we covered uh, in Second Samuel a ways back uh, a, a real simple verse. We covered a number of chapters. But it just it, it concluded by saying, after these things. And uh, we went through all those things. We went through every aspect of David's life. And, and you remember, it all began when Samuel came to the house of Jesse and called for the sons because God told him to go and anoint the next king over Israel, a man after God's own heart. He had told Saul that the kingdom would be removed from him because he, he uh, disobeyed the Lord. And uh, so um, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He goes down each of the brothers. Finally, none of them fit the bill. And uh, Samuel says, are these all your sons? He says, there's one. And as we've studied that, it means in the Hebrew, the least in my estimation, he's not worth your time. Samuel says, go get him. We'll continue standing until he comes. So David arrives. And as Josephus declares, when Samuel poured the oil over David's head, he whispered in his ear and he said, uh, you are the king of Israel. Uh, and that's what he declared to David, whispering in his ear, according to Josephus, as the oil poured down David's head. And we're, we can only assume when that happened. Uh, some scholars believe it happened when he was 13. Others say it was around when he was 16 or 17. We're going to be able to see a portion of his life um, as we resume our study, because from the time of the anointing by Samuel in David's life to him being uh, uh, the king over Judah... He reigned in Judah for seven years before he, he became king over the rest of the territory. So in that course of time, 20 years passed in David's life. And we went after these things. We studied that in our last study, after these things, where he was chased by Saul. He, he lied to Ahimelech. Uh, he, he watched as Ahimelech was dis, uh, killed and all the high priests were killed because of his lie by Doag, the Edomite. Uh, we saw that he was going to kill um, 
Nabal and Abigail stopped him. And then Nabal had a heart attack and he married Abigail. And we saw that uh, he defended the, uh, the, the, the citizens of Keilah and then they betrayed him and he feigned madness. And we, we just see all these different aspects of his life. We also watched as he took down Goliath and, and we've now gotten word that Saul's dead and Jonathan's dead. David's whole life has been in turmoil. His family's been hunted. We, we found that he was in the caves of Engedi and all that were distressed, discontented and indebted came to him. And there he formulated the the next administration for the great kingdom. They talk politics in the cave. We went through all of that. We saw how David had victory. And now as we studied in the last session, where it said after these things, and we covered all those chapters to look at, you know, that simple sentence that God says. To God, it's a simple sentence. To us, it's a lifetime. You know, the, the, the making of a saint is but a moment, but the sanctifying of a saint takes a lifetime. And God was, was chastening David. God was purifying David. God was, had him in the refiner's fire. He was refining David. He was taking the Saul out of David by using Saul in his life. Uh, he, he challenged him. He pushed him. He put him in compromising positions. His men rebelled against him or challenged him. And, and God wanted to see what kind of a man this would be. You, you don't know what kind of a Christian you are until you've been, you know, Christians are like, you know, tea bags. You don't know what they're like until you put them in hot water. And then that what comes out is who they are. And a faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. If God was going to have David ex, uh, be the expression of the lion of the tribe of Judah, that the, the name of, of Jesus would echo in the halls of heaven with David's name attached to it, God wanted to make sure that this guy was solid. We also studied all the failures of David's life, Bathsheba. We've, well, we're going to get to more of that, but we, we've, we've seen where David had all kinds of failures in his life, endless failures. And he struggled immensely. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was a, uh, a murderer. We're going to see all this in David's life. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for availability. God's looking for men and women who cry out and understand the greatest attribute God possesses is mercy. And when you cry out for mercy, God will grant it. But he gives you mercy so you can walk away from sin. He gives you mercy so that he can, he can shower you in grace. But it requires that your heart is broken. God's economy is such that only in God's kingdom is a broken vessel valuable. And it's actually more valuable than a whole vessel on earth. In God's kingdom, you're more valuable broken than you've ever been in all your life. God's interested in a broken and contrite heart. David got that from God. David understood forgiveness. David understood mercy. We know in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. David got it. He understood mercy. He understood the heart of the Lord. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Every time he knew how to get into the heart of the Lord and God had a love for him. He wasn't perfect. I tell you, I can, I can associate with more of David's failures than I can his successes. But the thing I love about it is God doesn't hide all the failures of his of of the heroes of scripture. He lets us see it in all of its misery so that we can relate as well. God's in the business of redeeming us and the way he does it is by breaking us. And so this passage of scripture, David has now reigned as we studied in our last time together. David has now reigned over Judah for seven years. The, uh, Judah um, has Hebron. That's where David would assemble. But now we're going to see that the rest of Israel is going to gather to David. We find in Chronicles that 400, 480,000 uh, soldiers gathered to David. All of a sudden, the kingdom started to fall. Uh, what happened is after Saul died, 
uh, Abner put forward uh, Ishbosheth and, and tried to make him king. He reigned for two years. He failed. What was happening is that the territory of Judah under David's reign was flourishing while all the rest of Israel was declining and imploding. Uh, here they, they had the right king on the right throne and they were flourishing. Over here they were imploding. And, and now all the folks start to see this. Wait, something special is happening in Judah, but here we're, we're in chaos. And, and all of a sudden they start to flock to David and revival begins in the nation. And we'll pick up 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're only going to cover 10 verses this evening. Chapter uh, 5 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over all of Israel. So really what we have here is all of the men of Israel in the outlying regions, they know that David was anointed king over Israel. They know of his renown. They know that he defended the citizens of Keilah. They know that he was a man that protected and went out on behalf of the Israelites. They know that he is a man that was anointed. They know the story about Samuel. They know that David is the one who's been anointed king over Israel. And all of a sudden, with all of this testing, everything starting to make sense, David has a foothold in Judah, and all the men start to gather to David in Hebron. You would think that David would make the capital city or, or the city of David in Hebron, but he doesn't. Watch what occurs here. And, and they, uh, one of the other things they added is they said that, indeed, uh, we are your bone and your flesh. They're saying, David, we're affiliated with you, not, not simply because we have a, a, an alliance with you. We're affiliated with you because we're related. We, we want to be part of your family. It goes deeper than, than an affiliation of, of a kingdom. Ours, we're the, we're the same blood. Our, our heart beats in your heart. And they associate themselves completely with David. Verse 3, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So this gives us a timeline of David's life in some respects. We don't know how old he was when he was anointed king by Samuel, but we know that he had reigned seven years and six months over Judah. And then the remaining time, uh, the 40 years, he reigned over both territories. And, um, and so uh, he reigned, excuse me, 33 years over both territories. So 40 years in total that he reigns over all of Israel. But here's where it gets interesting. That's, that is the, the synopsis or that is the Reader's Digest version of, of how this is occurring. And then God wants to break it down in the, the next verses. Watch this. And this is a lesson for us this evening. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. Thinking David cannot come in here, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. He shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow, which means landfill, and inward. And so David went on and became great. Uh, in in uh, some translations, it says he went going and growing. He went on going and growing. That's a great term for Christians, I would think. Amen? I uh, guess not. Nobody's here tonight. 
So David went on and became great, going and growing, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And so we're going to stop there, and we're going to take a look at the passage in its entirety, in its, in its depth, I should say. What happens is God gives uh, an outline of David's reign over both territories and how it came about. And you can study further in Chronicles, and we'll get there in time. But you can see in Chronicles where hundreds of thousands of men gathered to him, and all of a sudden they realize he'd been reigning for seven years in Judah, but the rest of Israel didn't accept him as king. Even though God had declared that he was king, even though the territory belonged to him, God gave it to him, it belonged to David, the rest of them weren't willing to yield. David's territory of Judah was flourishing. They were making alliances with other kings. Their economy was you know, growing and expanding. And the rest of the outlying territories was imploding. They were going through king after king. They were having struggles, internal struggles. People were disenchanted. They were discontented, and it was a mess. And so all of a sudden, as everyone starts to come into Judah and they, they gather together at Hebron, David says, you know what? It's time to take Jerusalem. Now, this is what's fascinating about Jerusalem. It had been a city for a thousand years. And for a thousand years, it had never been conquered. And I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the walls. You, you, you have the Jezreel Valley on one side. And on every area of the walls of Jerusalem is a valley. And when you see those walls, they are thick and impregnable, and, and you're looking up before you even get to the base where the walls begin. You're in the valley looking up. You have a steep climb to get to that area. The entire region is surrounded with all of these valleys, and it sits upon a hill, and everybody goes up to Jerusalem. These walls are impregnable. They're unbelievable. And, and as the Jebusites are the inhabitants of the land, and they're holding the stronghold of Jerusalem... David looks at it, and, and he basically says, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to take it. We're going to take Jerusalem. Now, these hundreds of thousands of men are thinking, David, why bother? We can set up a kingdom in, in Hebron. We can make the capital city in Hebron. The Jebusites are a waste of time. Although, if you do look on a map, Jerusalem is centrally located. It would be a great place for it. There's a stronghold ad adjacent to the, uh, <clears throat> to the walls themselves, and, and this is what David ends up taking as his area and calling it the city of David where he builds his palace. I've been there as well. So he, the, the Jebusites are inhabiting the land. David says to him, we're going up, we're going to take Jerusalem. They went up to Jerusalem against the, Jebu uh, the Jebusites in verse 6, and the inhabitants of the land spoke to David. And this is what they said to him. They said, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall repel you. They were mocking David. What they were saying is, we don't even have to stand guard on these walls. We can put the blind and the lame on these walls, and you're still not going to invade us. The walls themselves will repel you. We don't even need men on the walls. And if we put men on the walls, we're going to put the blind and the lame on these walls. David, you're not going to get this ever. We've been here for a thousand years and a thousand more years. We're still going to remain here. I don't care how tough you think you are. I don't care who you think anointed you. I don't care. And they began to mock David. This is a ridiculing of David and all of his men. We'll put the, blame, uh, the lame and the blind up here and you're not going to touch us. And they ridiculed David. It's fascinating. We'll see the application in a moment. And David, when he says to him, you cannot come in here, nevertheless, and look at verse 7. Just, just ruminate on that. Marinate on that. Verse 7. Pay attention. Look at verse 7. If you haven't gleaned anything from the study of David's life, verse 7 tonight is for you. This above all other things, I want you to take the biggest stronghold in your life. I want you to take those areas that you've never had success. Continually in your Christian walk, you have faced nothing but failure. It mocks you every time that you try to conquer it. It mocks you. And you fail. 
And for the entirety of your life, it almost seems as though it's been a thousand years and nobody's ever gotten into that fortress of that sin or whatever it is that mocks you. And there in verse seven, God wants you to hear this. If you've never heard anything before, he wants you to hear this. He spoke these words so profoundly to me today that I pray it does the same thing for you. With all of the mocking and all of the ridicule and all of the history of a thousand years of of it never being conquered, nevertheless, that's it. That's, that's, That's how God writes. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That's it. A fortress that hasn't been conquered in a thousand years, all that God gives to it is one sentence. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. They don't even tell us how he did it. I've seen those walls. It is ridiculous. You you shoot down at people. You can't even approach the walls, let alone get to the point of the wall to be able to even climb the wall. And the wall isn't even capable of climbing. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That's it. That's all God gives to it. And you'll see the application momentarily. But the Lord wants to make note It's not Zion, it's the city of David. It'll be in every song in the coming years. It'll be that which we rejoice and we sing of, this idea of the city of David. And this is what David said to his men. He said, now on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. David mocks them. We go up the water shaft, we'll take them. And we'll we'll take them in regards to whether they're blind or they're lame, we're gonna take them. And he says, if anyone is able to do that, and and the water shaft is no easy access. You're going through a very thin location and all they have to do is sit there and and shoot until it just piles up bodies and nobody gets through. A thin hole, one man at a time, and it's easy to kill him one at a time. He says, but the one who gets through, he'll be the chief and the captain. These men wanted to be a part of David's kingdom. They knew David was going places. They could see in David a man after God's own heart. They had seen him tested in the wilderness. They had seen him tested by Saul. They had seen him tested in every way, shape, and form. They had watched David go through the ringer. They saw that he had been refined. They saw that he went through everything. He'd been rejected. He had been mocked. He'd been ridiculed. He'd failed. And they never judged him by his failure. A man isn't judged by his, his, his inability to fail. The, the strength of a man is measured by what he does when he fails. And they watched that time and time again to the point where they said, my heart is knitted to David's. Wherever you're going to go, I'm going to go. I want to be a part of your kingdom because something is special about you. Something is unique about you. You're not motivated by, by gold. You're not motivated by, by women. You're not motivated by power. You're moved by something far greater that we've never seen in any other human being in all of our life. You're moved simply because God tells you to move. We've seen things where the odds have been so stacked against us and we came to you and we asked you to reconsider. You did and you kept coming back and saying it was the Lord. And when we would agree with you and we'd walk out in battle, outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, we would always have victory. And the victories were nothing short of miraculous. They, the bottom line, they were miraculous. David, all we can say is, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if, if this is the way we're supposed to do it, we'll do it. And, and to, to be a chief or a captain in your army... I'm in. Therefore, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Again, David mocks them. You want to mock me? I'll mock you. It's just like when Goliath mocked David, David mocked him back. I'm going to remove your head from your body and feed your carcass to the birds of the air. David knew he wasn't going to take down Goliath. We studied that on Sunday. David knew it was a battle between Goliath and God. And David just said, look, if they want to mock us, then then they're going to deal with it. 
And then verse 9, then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Millo and inward. And David went on and became great, going and growing. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. I want to stop there for a little bit. I want to stop and I want us to take a look at this idea of a thousand year impregnable fortress. I want you tonight, like I've been doing today, I want you tonight to take the thing that in the entirety of your life you've never had victory over. Never. Never. Oh, you're, you're a Christian, no doubt. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got Judah secure. But God called you to be over all of the territory that he entrusted to you. And yeah, that area in your life that is surrendered to God is flourishing, but all the outlining regions that you haven't given to God and the wrong king sits on the throne, they're imploding. And you know exactly what they are. I know in my life. You know exactly what they are and you know exactly what's happening in your life. And you can't keep the plates spinning and you're exhausted. And the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. And you think you've managed it, but God has this unbelievable way of making you tired and no matter how hard you try, you fail. And the harder you try to clean it up and the harder you try to fix it, it never accomplishes anything. And then you just yield. And every time you try to conquer it, you fail. And every time, and they mock you. It mocks you. This is the, the, the days that I've made a New Year's resolution and doggone and I am going to have victory in this area. And it's, it's a, what, three days? Four? In the following year, you don't even, even consider a New Year's resolution. Why bother? That's an impregnable fortress. And, and, and at the top of it, anytime you consider to give that territory over to God, to let him sit on the throne of it, anytime you consider that and you try to conquer it, failure. Year in, year out, year in, year out. A year turns to five, five turn to 10, 10 turn to a lifetime. And here you are discouraged and beat. And there's not revival. There's not a burning desire in your life to serve God in a great capacity. There's, there's no passion. You've got this Christian life managed that you, Judah's enough. That area's flourishing. I got a pretty good marriage. My job's doing pretty well. I got a little ministry over here that I do. But in your heart of hearts, in the darkness of your own soul, when all the lights are out and you're quiet and it's just you and the Lord, you know that there is, there's a nightmare in the outlining regions of your life. If there's an honest inventory, and that's what revival is, is, is to allow God to come in and shine his light into the dark crevices of our soul, you know there's strongholds that you've just been sitting there through the course of your life and they've just mocked you. And I think about the countless people who tried to attack Jerusalem over those thousand years. And as they approached the city to attack, they came up with every kind of plan imaginable. 10 steps to this and 12 steps to that and 15 steps to this. And if I could read this book and if I could just approach it from the east, if I approach it from the west, if I could dig under, if we could, if we could tunnel through, if we could, if we could catapult. If we, and and, and how, how many different scenarios in the course of a thousand years do you think face the walls of Jerusalem? Countless. Countless scenarios. And I can tell you, if you want to sit tonight and take an assessment of my life in those areas that, that have been raining uh, and, and the mocking that has been happening in my life in relation to that and the countless approaches I've taken to try to conquer it. 
It is ridiculous. You know, if you, you just, just do this or just do that. Maybe, maybe if I have accountability, maybe if I have uh, this person in my life, maybe if I, whatever it is, failure, mocking. I mean, at this point, it's, it's almost a joke. At this point, it's, it's depressing. And the people that approach that wall, I got to tell you what the real problem was. And tonight, I hope we all learn. Because when you see verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold. I don't know about you, but that's hope tonight. David took a thousand-year-old stronghold. You see, the problem, the problem has never been the strength of the stronghold. The problem's, all, well, the problem's always been in the, the weakness of the one who approaches it. Let me repeat that. The problem isn't the strength of the stronghold. The problem is the weakness of the one who approaches the stronghold. What did Jesus say? I can of my own self do nothing. You're incapable of taking the stronghold. You see, to conquer the stronghold... The key to taking the stronghold is you have to have the right king on the right throne. You see, the reason why Judah flourished is because they had the king anointed by God, appointed by God sitting on the throne. That's why Judah flourished. The reason why the outlying regions were failing is because David was supposed to be sitting on the throne of those regions. You want to have victory tonight? Put the right king on the right throne. Sounds simple. It sounds simple. And you know what? It is. The right king on the right throne, that's a success in a human life. Where you come to a place and you realize, as Paul said, walk in the spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now we started with that. We started with that, but pay attention to it. Here's our failure. We approach the wall. Pick the sin right now in the quietness of your own mind. You know what it is. Pick it. Maybe like me, you got a couple of them. Dozen. I don't know. Why are you looking at me like that? And then you think, all right, how do we beat this? Here's how I got to do it. I got to clean up my life and get God in here. Right? I, I just, I got to get everything right. I got to get this right so he can reign. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, walk in the spirit and then you shall fulfill the lust of the flesh. First you make him the king and you put him on the throne. Then you overcome the stronghold. You see, the church in America today is dying. When we put the offering on the Nazarene church over on Borchard to purchase the property and we lost to the Hindu temple, we had the same amount of money, we had less contingencies, we put our offer in. And the Nazarene church sided with it, 
at first it was a realtor and then the Nazarene church and then they got flack from everywhere and then there was a, a, a controversy in the Nazarene church. And then the response of the person who's, who oversees the financial aspects of the Nazarene church, his comment was, I'm doing God's work. And we did right by the Lord. And my question to him was, how is that possible? You got rid of a church and then you put in a temple, a Hindu temple. How are you doing the Lord's work? And his comment was, we got the best price for the building with the least amount of issue. And my comment to him was, you just lost a church. How is that doing God's work? Is money the head of the church? Does money sit on the throne? Is that what you worship? Colossians 1.18 says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. If we lose the sight that Christ is on the throne and he is the head of the church, and people say, Pastor, why do we have to study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book? Why do we have to study so much? Why can't we have topical messages? There's nothing wrong with a topical message periodically. But the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt with man. Where His Word is honored, there He is. It's the whole counsel of God. You want to know God? You know His Word. You spend time, and if you put the, if you put the Word of God in the center of all you do, and you teach people, and we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth, the church will always be healthy. We'll survive the failure of a pastor, we'll survive a, a, a split in a church, we'll survive... Whatever it is, we'll survive. 15 years I've been overseeing this fellowship, well, 14 years. And for 14 years overseeing this fellowship, we've, we've had all kinds of issues hit. But we've survived them. Because the people who are grounded in the word get it. And it holds the fellowship together because Christ is the head of the church. People come and go. They have agendas. They, they, there's things that they think that the church is supposed to be about. We want to make it about this. We want to make it about that. And people say, well, these are the priorities in life. God, um, your, your, your wife, your kids, your job. That's, that, that's not scriptural. That's not scriptural. The, there's one priority in life, God. Everything else changes in time. Sometimes it's the job. Sometimes it's your wife. Sometimes it's this person. God sets the agenda. The Bible says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. If you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the rest will be added unto you. He'll set your priority. He'll orchestrate it. He'll organize it. Christ is the head of the body. He's the church. The apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, he says, therefore, my beloved, and this is Philippians 2, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You and I can't conquer the wall. It's not the strength of the wall. It's the weakness of the one who approaches it. Conversely, it's not the strength of the wall. It's the strength of the one who approaches it. We can either give it to the Lord so that he can take it by making him king over all the land. The reason why David had a victory over the stronghold is because he was the right king at the right time on the right throne. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, he says, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You can't conquer the wall by the law. If I don't do this, and if I just don't do that, and if I just don't do this, it's not going to happen. The law doesn't save, and the law doesn't give victory. Only the right king on the right throne at the right time, and that's the Lord. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. If you were to say to God, you know, Lord, you're Lord of my life in Judah. And God, I want to give it all to you. I want you to be the king over all my life. I'm tired. I'm really tired. I'm tired of the mocking and the impregnable walls. I'm tired of the failure. God, I I really am at the end of myself. And I want to give you all the territory of my life that rightfully belongs to you. Did he die on the cross just for Judah or did he die on the cross for the entirety of your life? We know the answer to that. But I have to tell you something tonight. If you say to the Lord tonight, Lord, take it all, you're gonna get through those double doors or maybe these single doors because you're gonna you know, sneak out and you'll get out to the parking lot and you'll utter this prayer in your car, Lord, take it all. Sit on the throne of the entirety of my life, not just Judah, but have it all. He's gonna say, okay, we're gonna start with the biggest stronghold. We're gonna start with Jerusalem. God, the Jebusites have that. It's never been conquered. I want you to forgive that person. I haven't heard that name uttered in I don't know how long. Lord, I can't do that. This spring, I want you to pay all your taxes. (laughs) Honestly. I want you to address the infidelity. I want the drugs. I want the alcohol. I want that territory of your life. I'm tired of you figuring out all these different ways to try to approach that wall. It's time to put me on the throne. And the minute you put me on the throne, I'll scale that wall. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And today when I read this and I saw in verse seven, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. For the first time in 50 years, the excitement in my heart. And I have to tell you something else. It was frightening. J. Edwin Orr, the foremost historian of revival says revival's like judgment day. Because to put God on the throne of the outlying territories, you have to acknowledge that those territories are failing. And you have to acknowledge that your efforts have been futile. And you have to acknowledge 
that you've been trying to reign when only God is supposed to be there. You've been setting standards that you've been failing. You've been setting laws that you've been breaking. And you've been trying to save yourself by all these rules and these regulations and these self-help and whatever it is and the number of steps. And God says, there's one step, put me on the throne. And when I tell you to go through the water shaft, you go. When I tell you to scale that wall, you scale it. God, I don't think I can. You can do it through me. And that's going to require that you abide in me and you trust me and you press in. I want you to hear my heart. I want you to abide in my word. And through my word, I'll tell you what you need to do. You don't wake up and say, you know, I get the word on Sunday. And God said, well, I wanted to conquer it on Wednesday because that's when you were in trouble. I want it all. I want you walking in victory. And do you know that when David took the stronghold of Zion and he conquered the the largest castle first, their territory went from 6,000 miles to 70,000 miles like that. You want an abundant Christian life? You want to flourish? You die, Christ lives. Get off the throne of your life. Quit trying to achieve it by the law. Ask him for big and bold things. Acknowledge the deteriorating state of those areas that you've been managing in your flesh. Your unforgiveness, thinking that if I just ignore them, the secret connections in your life that you've been dabbling in, the taxes, the hurt, the bitterness, and say, God, I see it the way you see it. I'm calling it the way you're calling it. And you've had Judah, but you haven't had anything else. I know I'm saved, but I'm not living. God, I need you to take it all. And I'll tell you tonight, if you're willing, and you ask God to take that big, giant fortress that mocks you, you know what kind of a God he is? He's amazing. The, uh, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, anyone know who that is? Who? Ship captain, give me his name. John Newton. John Newton had amazing victory in his life. People were stunned at the things that he had overcome. People who knew him in his past and knew him in his ministry were shocked at the radical transformation of his life. They didn't believe it. 
They couldn't believe the joy he possessed in his blindness in the latter years of his life. They couldn't believe the miracles that occurred in his church. The revival that occurred through him and the transformation of the Western world, he alone was responsible for transforming the heart. God used him as an instrument to transform the heart of William Wilberforce that ended slavery in the British Empire. One man. One man who was a slave trader who said, God, I was running from my mother, I was running from my family, but more importantly, I was running from you. I want you to take it all. And God said, okay, we're going big, John. And John, when they would ask him, how is it that you had that mindset to ask God to take such large areas of your life that just seemed unconquerable? He was a raging alcoholic. And he used to tell the story of Alexander the Great. And he told the story to all those who inquire. He said, I love the story about Alexander the Great that... And we studied it on, on Sunday. Then in 12 years, he conquered the known world. He died at 32 years of age. He started at 20 and conquered the known world in 12 years. And he had conquered one kingdom. And he went to the king and he said, I want your daughter's hand in marriage because he was just infatuated by her. He said, name your price. And the king laid out an enormous sum of money to the point where the treasurers gathered together in Alexander's court and they, they, just, they looked at the treasury and they said, the amount he's asking, is, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievably high. It, it, it almost exceeds the amount in the treasury. And Alexander said, give it to him. And they inquired and they said, why? And they said, or he said to them, first of all, She's beautiful. And secondly, I love the price that he placed upon her. And more importantly, I love that he knows I'm magnificent enough to pay it. And then he would treat me like a king to ask so high a price. And if that's Alexander the Great in worldly terms, Think in relation to what God wants to do in your life and the price he's willing to pay. He's already purchased you and me. The territory is already his. Aren't you tired of approaching the stronghold in your weakness or would you rather yield and put the right king on the throne to approach the fortress in his strength and not your weakness? Because when you acknowledge your weakness, his strength is made perfect for victory. And you ask him and he'll take it. He'll take that stronghold. But that's going to require you saying, God, take it all. And God will say, I want you to arise this morning and I want you to abide in me because I have instruction for you on what we're going to do today. And you don't say no to the king. You give him what he asked for. And your territory will flourish. And then the other story I like I think it's a legend. I don't know that it's true. I, I, I copied it down, and I've heard it told a number of times. And I, I, I seriously doubt it's true, but I still like it as a story. Let's just pretend for a moment. And think about what you're asking God for. You ask small, you get small. Ask big. Go for the biggest 
fortress and take it. Give it to him. Just say, God, I want you to have it all. Tonight, years ago, a famous golfer was invited by the king of Saudi Arabia to play in a golf tournament. He accepted the invitation and the king flew his private jet over the United States to pick up the pro. They played golf for several days and enjoyed a good time. As the golfer was getting on the plane to return to the United States, the king stopped and said, I want to give you a gift for coming all this way and making this time so special. Anything you want, what could I get you? Ever the gentleman, the golfer replied, oh, please, don't, don't get me anything. You've been a gracious host. I've had a wonderful time. I couldn't ask for anything more. The king was adamant. He said, no, I insist on giving you something so you'll always remember your journey to our country. When the golfer realized that the king was resolute, he said, okay, fine. I, I collect golf clubs. Why don't you give me a golf club? He boarded the plane on his flight back home. He couldn't help wondering what kind of a golf club the king might give him. He imagined that might be solid gold putter with his name engraved on it, or it would be a sand wedge studded with diamonds and jewels. And after all, this would be a gift from an oil-rich king of Saudi Arabia. When the golfer got home, he watched the mail and the delivery service every day to see if the golf club had come yet. Finally, several weeks later, he received a certificate letter from the king of Saudi Arabia. The U.S. professional thought that rather strange. Where's my golf club, he wondered. He opened the envelope, and to his surprise, inside, he discovered a deed to a 500-acre golf course in America, a golf club. (laughs) I would just say tonight for all of us, it's time for the fortress to be conquered. And you can't conquer it in your weakness. Put the right king on the throne. Do what he tells you to do every morning when he gives you his word and do it. Do it. And then all the territory will be his. And the victory of your life won't be 6,000 miles. It'll be 70,000 miles. It's time to flourish. It's time for revival. It spoke to me. I pray it spoke to you as well. Amen? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads for a second. I want you to hear the mocking voice of the fear in your own heart as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. In the course of this message, I could see in all your eyes that this is not something any of us wants to deal with. We've been content with Judah while the rest of our life is in turmoil. We've been trying to call the shots. We've been trying to rule. We say we want this or we want that. We've been trying to go about it our own way. And every time we fail, we just hear the mocking coming from the top of the wall. You shall not come in here. The blind and the lame will repel you. And then I want you to hear these words. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The city of David belongs to God. And the only way that that territory that you've been in charge of that's falling apart is going to flourish like Judah. Because it's time to let Jesus be on the throne, the right king on the right throne. And today's the day that happens. You don't even want to utter the name of that stronghold, but you know what it is. It's time to give it to the Lord. It's his. He purchased you and I with a prize. It's all his. He sits on the throne. 
and he'll give you orders every morning when you open his word. The king will speak and he'll tell you how to approach it, what course to take. And you open that word and you say, I am listening. Speak to me, my king. And that stronghold will belong to God. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice that you are mighty and you overcome strongholds. And we declare today that we walk in the Spirit and only when we allow you, Holy Spirit, to be on the throne of our life, then and only then will we have victory over the lust of the flesh. And Jesus, you are the head of the body. My body doesn't operate unless the king tells me what to do. The right king on the right throne. Lord, may there be revival, starting with a small group of saints on this obscure Wednesday night in this town. May God do a mighty work and begin with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.